there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. On the afternoon of July 22nd, 1933, Londoners George Spicer and his wife set off for a romantic drive through rural Scotland. The Spicers had come to Scotland for a motoring holiday that would take them along a new road, offering dramatic views of the picturesque lochs, the Scottish term for lakes. As they drove from the town of Doors to their hotel in Foyers, the Spicers found themselves riding along the eastern shore of Loch Ness. Up until that point, the drive had been uneventful. The road was clear, and they were able to enjoy the dramatic scenery. But as they crested a slight rise, the Spicers saw something that defied reality. No more than 50 yards ahead of the car, the headlights illuminated a giant creature George Spicer described as, quote, the nearest approach to a dragon or prehistoric animal that I have ever seen, end quote. Despite its large, ungainly flippers, the creature moved with remarkable speed. Spicer tried to get a closer look at it, but by the time the car arrived at the spot where the creature had crossed the road, it had disappeared into the murky waters of Loch Ness. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this podcast, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every week, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm Molly. This week, we'll be investigating the Loch Ness Monster, affectionately known as Nessie. Nessie is believed to patrol the depths of Loch Ness, a large freshwater lake deep in the Scottish Highlands. Ever since George Spicer's now famous 1933 sighting, the Loch Ness Monster has captured people's imaginations across the planet. Despite several hoaxes and the general skepticism of the scientific community, people continue to comb Loch Ness's murky depths in search of incontrovertible proof that this legendary creature truly exists. In today's episode, we will trace the Loch Ness Monster's history, spanning from around 500 AD to present day, and we'll highlight the attempts to prove Nessie is indeed real. Next week, we'll delve into the possible explanations behind this phenomenon, and we'll try to conclude whether the Loch Ness Monster could really exist, or if it's simply a figment of our collective imaginations. If you like the show, you can subscribe on your favorite podcast directory. A new episode comes out every Thursday. While you're there, we greatly appreciate a five-star review. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. 
You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, on Twitter at Parcast Network, and at Parcast.com. George Spicer wrote a letter about the strange creature he had seen to the local newspaper, the Inverness Courier. It was published two weeks later in the August 4th edition. Its contents were so extraordinary that the paper's editor felt it necessary to explain that the creature the Spicers had seen was most likely a large otter. But the editor's explanation fell on deaf ears. Soon after George Spicer's letter was published, people began flocking to Loch Ness in search of the mysterious creature, which became known as the Loch Ness Monster. The earliest believed written account of the Loch Ness Monster dates all the way back to the 7th century, appearing in St. Adamnan's book titled The Life of St. Columba. St. Columba was an Irish abbot who helped spread Christianity in Scotland. The account depicts an event that took place on August 22, 585, about 100 years before Adamnan wrote his book about St. Columba. Columba was trying to cross the river Ness, which flows out of the Loch Ness, when he saw a group of indigenous picked warriors burying one of their friends. They claimed a powerful water beast had killed him while he swam in the river. Upon hearing this, Columba sent one of his disciples, Brother Lunya Macumen, to swim across the river and fetch a small boat moored on the other side. Despite his attempts at stealth, Brother Lunya's splashing alerted the creature, described only as a, quote, ferocious monster. It surfaced with a loud roar and headed straight for the hapless monk. But St. Columba was able to save him. In the name of God, he commanded the water beast to leave Lunya alone. The monster turned away at once. Adamnan described the event as if the monster moved, quote, more quickly than if it had been pulled back with ropes, end quote. The monster dove back into the river and was never seen again. While some people point out that this account took place in the river Ness rather than in the loch, it is widely regarded as the first written account of the creature believed to be the Loch Ness monster. Since Adamnan wrote the account nearly a century after the actual event took place, it's difficult to ascertain its authenticity, and there are no other contemporary accounts to corroborate it. Nevertheless, it fits in within the tradition of mythological water creatures in Scotland. In fact, carvings near Loch Ness made by the Picts, a collection of tribal peoples who lived in Scotland from the late Iron Age to the early medieval period, depict a flippered beast that bears resemblance to the typical imagery associated with the Loch Ness Monster. Is it believed this creature could be a depiction of the Loch Ness Monster? Or is it perhaps some other sort of creature? Many Loch Ness Monster scholars point to these carvings as early evidence of at least some sort of unidentified creature living in Loch Ness. With a long snout, flippers, and a curly tail, the subject of these carvings almost resembles some sort of aquatic horse. It's possible these carvings depict a Kelpie, a mythological shape-shifting water horse that is believed to live in large bodies of water. Possibly originating from the Gaelic word kaliach or kolpach, meaning heifer or colt, the Kelpie is one of the oldest creatures in Scottish mythology. 
Some scholars believe the Kelpie myth began as a way for parents to warn their children to stay away from dangerous waters. Kelpies traditionally present themselves as tame, friendly ponies in order to entice children to ride on top of them. However, upon being mounted, the Kelpie's magical hide becomes so sticky that it is impossible to dismount. Once a Kelpie has trapped a child, it drags the child into the water to eat them. These dangerous creatures can also appear in human form, presenting themselves as beautiful women that lure lusty young men to their deaths. The Kelpie could very well be the basis for the Loch Ness Monster. In the nearly 1,500 years after Adamnan's account of St. Columba's encounter with the monster in the River Ness, there are several references to Kelpies and the Ach Ishka, another deadly mythological water horse around Loch Ness. Although descriptions of the Loch Ness Monster don't line up with the traditional imagery of the Kelpie, there's certainly long-standing belief that something dangerous lurks in Loch Ness. But for the nearly 1,500 years after the account of St. Columba's encounter with the water beast in the River Ness, these stories were relegated to folklore and regarded as old wives' tales. Until 1933, there were no officially recorded sightings of any strange creatures in Loch Ness. In May 1933, the Inverness Courier printed a story about a local couple who claimed to see a large whale-like creature rolling on the loch's surface before disappearing in a mass of foam. The article also mentioned a similar sighting reported by some local fishermen a few years earlier, but it was thought to be a large seal or porpoise and didn't gain any significant attention. Nessie mania didn't truly take hold until George Spicer's letter was published in August 1933, perhaps due to the account's descriptive and scintillating nature. Previously, the rumored monster had only been vaguely described as a creature of large bulk that could perhaps be a porpoise or seal. While porpoises have never been seen near the lock, Seals have been spotted in the river Ness, making it possible that one might have made its way into the loch. There's certainly enough room for a seal or porpoise to hide in Loch Ness. At 22 and a half miles long and a mile and a half wide, Loch Ness has a surface area of 21.8 square miles, making it the second largest loch in Scotland by surface area. When factoring in its depth, which plunges down to 755 feet at some points. It's the largest lock by volume in all the British Isles. With Loch Ness's prodigious size comes an abundance and diversity of life. Some of the native fish species include eels, pike, sturgeon, minnows, salmon, trout, and char. Mammals confirmed to live in and around the lock are otters and deer, whose splashing has sometimes been mistaken for the Loch Ness Monster. But Spicer's description of the creature he saw as resembling a dragon or prehistoric animal with a long neck and large body put the thoughts of it possibly being any of these animals to rest. Suddenly, other accounts corroborating the Spicer's description started coming out of the woodwork. Alex Campbell, Loch Ness's water bailiff, who was responsible for patrolling the lock, wrote a letter to his employers on October 28, 1933, detailing an encounter he had with the Loch Ness Monster on September 7th of the previous month. At around 9.30 on a misty morning, Campbell was looking out onto the lake when he saw a creature he believed to be about 30 feet long emerge from the loch's still waters. Its neck stuck nearly five feet above the water, 
and seemed to look around for a minute or so before submerging. In his letter, Campbell admitted that it may have been an optical illusion. About a month later, he observed a similar phenomenon, which turned out to be a group of cormorants bobbing up and down in the water. However, Campbell still believed in the Loch Ness Monster's existence and continued to voice his belief until his death in June 1983. Many others shared his enthusiasm and people began flocking to Loch Ness to catch a glimpse of this incredible creature. The search for the Loch Ness Monster became so intense that in late 1933, Bertram Mills, the owner of the Bertram Mills Circus, offered a 20,000 pound reward for anyone who could capture it which would amount to over two million American dollars today. The hunt for Nessie even reached the British government. In late 1933, questions were submitted to the House of Commons asking whether Nessie would be protected from hunters. In response, an act of parliament was passed, prohibiting the removal of any unidentified creatures from Loch Ness. However, the government left it to the public to obtain proof of Nessie's existence. The Secretary of State responded that, quote, further researches are properly a matter for the private enterprise of scientists aided by the zeal of the press and of photographers, end quote. And the public seemingly delivered. The search to provide proof of Nessie's existence appeared to be concluded after Hugh Gray, a resident of nearby Inverness, produced what he claimed was a photo of the creature. When Gray went on a morning walk with his pet Labrador on the morning of November 12, 1933, he said he noticed a giant flipper tail thrashing in the water. Gray quickly snapped a photo with the camera, producing a blurry print that could possibly depict a tail in a spray of water. The picture was printed in a November edition of the Scottish tabloid The Daily Record. But while some hailed it as proof of the monster's existence, it was met with general skepticism. Upon closer inspection, what initially appears to be Nessie's body seems to actually be the blurred head of a dog swimming with a stick at its mouth. Others also said it was probably a swan or an otter, but the photograph subject is most likely Gray's trusty Labrador retriever. With Gray's photo proving inconclusive, there was still no tangible proof that the Loch Ness monster existed. It was clear that if Nessie was ever to be found, a professional was needed. The popular English tabloid newspaper, The Daily Mail, sent famed big-game hunter Marmaduke Wetherill to Loch Ness in December 1933. Despite its unreliable reputation, The Daily Mail was one of the most popular newspapers in the entire world, and its sponsorship of Wetherill's expedition gained global attention. Wetherill, who was also an actor and film director, arrived at Loch Ness amongst great fanfare. He enlisted the aid of Arthur Grant, a veterinary student who claimed he had nearly run into the Loch Ness Monster while riding his motorcycle in August 1933. With a photographer from the Daily Mail named Polly in tow, Wetherell began to search the area where Grant claimed he had seen the monster. Less than 48 hours after Wetherell began his search, he discovered what he said was indisputable proof of Nessie's existence. We'll return to our story in just a moment. And now, let's continue our story. As Marmaduke Wetherill searched along Loch Ness's shores in late 1933, he came across fresh footprints of a huge, four-toed animal that he believed to be about 20 feet long. 
He quickly ordered for plaster casts to be made of the footprints and sent them to the Natural History Museum of London for analysis shortly before Christmas. On December 21st, 1933, the Daily Mail hailed Wetherell's discovery with the triumphant headline, Monster of Loch Ness is not legend, but a fact. The ensuing weeks saw even more people descend on Loch Ness, filling nearby Inverness's hotels and clogging roads in all directions. Unfortunately, Wetherell's triumph proved to be short-lived. In early January of 1934, the museum's findings came back. The footprints turned out to be those of a hippopotamus. Someone had taken a stuffed hippopotamus foot that had served as the base of an umbrella stand or an ashtray and used it to create the footprints Wetherell had discovered. Wetherell's discovery did seem too good to be true. Was he part of this charade? Whether Wetherell was behind the hoax or whether he was duped by a prankster is unclear. But either way, he was humiliated. What had been hailed as an incredible discovery shortly before Christmas of 1933 was regarded with humor and scorn not long after the beginning of 1934. But even though the established scientific community stopped showing any serious interest in the Loch Ness Monster, interest in Nessie was greater than ever. On the morning of April 19, 1934, respected London gynecologist Dr. Kenneth Wilson was driving along Loch Ness with his friend Maurice Chambers. Around 7 in the morning, the two men stopped on a promontory about two miles north of Invermoriston, on the west side of the lake, possibly to take in the sunrise. As they admired the view, Dr. Wilson noticed a commotion on the water about 300 yards away. As luck would have it, Wilson had borrowed a telephoto lens for the purpose of photographing wild fowl that allowed him to take pictures of faraway objects. He was able to take four pictures before the mysterious creature submerged itself into the lock. The first two prints weren't properly exposed, and the fourth was too blurry to make out what he had seen. However, the third photograph was unquestionably the Loch Ness Monster. The photo appeared in the Daily Mail on April 21, 1934. Unlike the blurry, unconvincing nature of Hugh Gray's 1933 photograph, Wilson's picture of Nessie clearly showed its large, humped body and long neck protruding from the water. The photo became colloquially known as the surgeon's photograph, since Wilson was at first reluctant to attach his name to it in fear of the publicity it would attract. After the embarrassing debacle with Marmaduke Wetherill, it seemed as though the Daily Mail was finally vindicated. Although some skeptics dismissed the photo's subject as a piece of driftwood, an otter, a seal, or even a swimming elephant from a local circus, many more took it as indisputable proof of the Loch Ness Monster's existence. The surgeon's photograph became a rallying point for cryptozoologists, or people who study creatures from folkloric record. But not everyone was content with photographic evidence of the Loch Ness Monster. Despite the laws protecting Nessie from harm, there were those who wanted to see a body, alive or dead. On August 15, 1938, William Fraser, the chief constable of Invernessure, wrote a letter to the local government voicing his concern for the Loch Ness Monster's safety. The letter detailed an encounter one of Fraser's officers had with a man named Peter Kent three days earlier at Fort Augustus, 
located on the south end of Loch Ness. Kent, along with his companion Marion Sterling, had come from London to capture the Loch Ness Monster. Kent informed the officer stationed at Fort Augustus that he was having a special harpoon gun made that he thought would be powerful enough to restrain the monster. He and Sterling were planning on returning on August 22nd with 20 additional men in order to capture Nessie alive or dead. Although Chief Constable Frazier warned Kent to leave Nessie alone, he still wrote his letter to express concern that the police weren't capable of properly protecting it. It's unclear if Kent and Sterling ever returned to Loch Ness with their hunting party, although if they had found anything, it would have surely been announced in the press. Just as Nessie fever seemed to have reached its breaking point, the eruption of World War II from 1939 to 1945 created an understandable downturn in attention on Loch Ness. But this didn't mean there weren't any sightings during that time. During the war, jurisdiction over Loch Ness fell to the British Navy. In May of 1943, C.B. Farrell of the Royal Observer Corps was on watch for enemy bombers, but ended up encountering the Loch Ness Monster instead. About 250 yards from his observation post, Farrell spotted a creature around 20 to 30 feet long, with a long neck that protruded four to five feet above the water. He said it appeared to have a fin, and it eventually submerged back into the water with barely any disturbance. Farrell's encounter was the only notable sighting during the war. However, there was still significant local interest in Nessie, and people continued to search for the Loch Ness Monster after the war's conclusion. Throughout the 1950s, a local doctor named Constance White collected eyewitness accounts of people's encounters with the Loch Ness Monster, eventually publishing them in 1957 in the book More Than a Legend. One instance described in White's book was of a fishing vessel called Rival 3, whose sonar picked up a large object that was keeping pace with the boat at a depth of almost 500 feet in December 1954. The Rival 3's discovery meant that Loch Ness monster sightings were no longer confined to eyewitness accounts or blurry photographs. Scientific technology could help prove the monster's existence. Dr. White's book successfully reignited the Nessie fever that had previously gripped the region. It galvanized amateur monster hunters like David James, a member of the British Parliament, who formed the Loch Ness Investigation Bureau, known as the LNIB, in 1960. The group would keep a constant watch on Loch Ness until 1972. At its height in 1969, the LNIB boasted 1,030 members, with about half being from the UK. Armed with binoculars and cameras, LNIB members set up a base camp on Loch Ness's northern shore. Daily, members would drive customized vans from base camp to designated observation posts. The hope was to keep watch on the water at all times in order to catch any instances of Nessie rising from its murky depths. Although the LNIB wasn't able to obtain any concrete evidence to prove the Loch Ness Monster's existence, encounters such as the Rival 3's sonar detection of a mysterious entity did attract the attention of the scientific community. Starting in 1958, the next decade would see four serious scientific expeditions mounted to search for the Loch Ness Monster. The first was by the BBC, 
and respected universities such as Oxford, Cambridge, and the University of Birmingham conducted the next three. These heavy hitters had access to technologies far more advanced than anything previously utilized to search for the Loch Ness Monster. Each expedition used sonar to search the loch's waters for any unusual entities. Originally developed as a military technology, sonar stands for sound navigation ranging. It uses sound waves to detect and determine the distance and direction of underwater objects. Much like echolocation, a sonar machine sends out sound waves into the water and can analyze the size and shape of the objects that reflect them. None of the first three expeditions conducted between 1958 and 1968 returned with conclusive proof of the Loch Ness Monster, although they all detected large, moving objects that defied concrete explanation. Unfortunately, none of these expeditions had technology powerful enough to determine what these objects could be. While they might be the Loch Ness Monster prowling the depths of Loch Ness, they could also be schools of fish moving in erratic patterns or driftwood carried along by underwater currents. But the fourth expedition, conducted in 1968 by D. Gordon Tucker of the University of Birmingham, utilized even more powerful sonar technology than the previous three had. Tucker, who was the chair of the university's Department of Electronic and Electrical Engineering, had developed a prototype sonar device that was able to reach a range of up to 2,600 feet, more than enough to cover Loch Ness's 750-foot depth. The device was placed underwater at Temple Pier in Loch Ness's Urquhart Bay. For two weeks in August 1968, it cast a crisscrossing acoustic net that would detect any passing object. It recorded multiple instances of movement that could be flagged as unusual. Most were probably schools of fish, but one defied that explanation. Tucker's device detected an object several meters long, diving at 450 feet per minute. The vertical nature of the dive eliminated the possibility of an inanimate object, although the speed is relatively low, about six miles an hour. For comparison, a salmon can dive up to eight miles an hour. While Tucker's findings were acknowledged as unusual, they were not conclusive enough to prove the objects detected were anything out of the ordinary. But his expedition and the other before his made one thing clear. There were things in Loch Ness that defied traditional explanation. A few years after Tucker's expedition, the search for Nessie hit another major milestone. In late March of 1972, a team of scientists from the Flamingo Park Zoo in Yorkshire traveled to Loch Ness on a joint mission with the LNIB to test a hormone sex bait they had developed. On the morning of March 31, 1972, as the team members enjoyed a breakfast together, they heard that someone had reported seeing a large hump floating in the water by their hotel. They went outside to investigate and spotted something bobbing up and down less than 300 yards away. Under the direction of team leader Terence O'Brien, the group leapt into a boat and went to investigate. They came back with what could only be the dead body of the Loch Ness Monster. Within a few hours, the news spread like wildfire. Eyewitnesses described the carcass as having smooth green skin and resembling something between a bear and a seal. It was between 12 and 18 feet long and it looked like it weighed up to one and a half tons. When contacted for comment, 
Don Robinson, the director of the Flamingo Park Zoo, said, quote, I've always been skeptical about the Loch Ness Monster, but this is definitely a monster, no doubt about that. From the reports I've had, no one has ever seen anything like it before, end quote. The next morning, the discovery made headlines around the world. The British press dubbed it the Son of Nessie. However, the local police were furious when they found out the zoological team had taken off with the carcass. England and Scotland have a long, tense history, and it was unthinkable that English scientists would be examining one of Scotland's most famous icons. They requested aid from the county police, citing the Act of Parliament from 1933 that prohibited the removal of unidentified creatures from Loch Ness. The scientists were apprehended, and the creature's body was sent to the town of Dunfermline so Scottish, not English, scientists could examine it. Michael Rushton, the general curator of the Edinburgh Zoo, was chosen to conduct the examination. After a brief study, Rushton concluded that while this creature's presence in Loch Ness was odd, it was no monster. It was a bull elephant seal, whose species lived in the South Atlantic Ocean, thousands of miles from Loch Ness. Furthermore, it appeared as if the body had been frozen for an extended period of time. The next day, John Shields, the Flamingo Park Zoo's education officer, admitted he had placed the carcass in Loch Ness. The seal had recently died at the zoo, and when Shields heard about his colleague's trip to Loch Ness, he saw it as a perfect opportunity to play the ultimate April Fool's Day prank. Shields had shaved off the seal's whiskers, patted its cheeks with stones, and froze it for a week to distort its appearance. He offered no explanation for its greenish color. It was most likely either from algae that had collected on it while it was in the lock, or a result of decomposition. Shields placed the body in the lock and phoned in a tip to ensure his colleagues discovered it just in time for the headline to be printed on April 1st. Once the police became involved, he realized the situation was getting out of hand and decided to admit it was a prank. But Shields' prank didn't diminish the scientific community's desire to search Loch Ness for mysterious creatures. And a new expedition would yield the most convincing proof yet that the Loch Ness Monster was much more than a myth. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. And now, back to Unexplained Mysteries. During their honeymoon to Scotland in 1972, an American lawyer with a background in physics named Robert Rhines and his wife Carol spotted something on Loch Ness. As they enjoyed their afternoon tea, Robert and Carol saw what appeared to be a big grayish hump about 30 feet long that bobbed on the lock's surface for nearly 10 minutes. Rhines was convinced he and Carol had seen Nessie and organized a high-tech expedition in August 1972 to Loch Ness. He partnered with the Academy of Applied Science based in Boston, Massachusetts. Boasting members with ties to MIT, the Academy of Applied Science packed scientific firepower that eclipsed even the respected expeditions that had taken place during the previous decade. Ryan's expedition utilized a sophisticated sonar technology called side-scan sonar in conjunction with an underwater camera that took a picture every 45 seconds. Using a powerful strobe light, the camera could capture any object picked up by the sonar. On the night of August 8, 1972, 
Rhines hit pay dirt. The sonar unit detected an object believed to be six to nine meters, or 20 to 30 feet in length. The data was analyzed on site by several specialists from MIT and respected imaging companies such as Raytheon, and it was concluded that the data indicated the object had an approximately 10-foot protuberance that could indicate a highly flexible, laterally flattened tail. This analysis was supported by photo evidence, which appeared to be a rhomboid-shaped flipper that fit with prior eyewitness descriptions of the Loch Ness Monster. It was photographed in multiple positions, indicating movement. Rhines was elated by his findings which proved to be sufficient enough to organize another expedition in August 1975. This time, he detected two objects estimated to be about 30 feet long. The camera once again captured images that seemed to be two white, lumpy objects surrounded by bubbles. Not only did these photos lend credence to Nessie's existence, but they also raised the possibility that there was more than one of these creatures living in Loch Ness. The photographs, along with the sonar data Ryans had collected, captured the attention of reputable scientists such as Dr. George Zug, the curator of reptiles and amphibians at the Smithsonian Institution. When asked to comment on Ryans' evidence, Zug said, quote, I believe these data indicate the presence of large animals in Loch Ness, but are insufficient to identify them, end quote. Others were more vocal in their support of Ryan's discovery. Harold Edgerton, who had invented side-scan sonar, and Sir Peter Scott, a prominent British naturalist, both believed that Rhines had discovered the Loch Ness Monster. With their support, Robert Rhines was given the opportunity to present his findings to the House of Commons in London on December 10, 1975. The Loch Ness Monster was finally receiving serious scientific attention. Scott bestowed it with the binomial nomenclature Nessiteris rhombopteryx, meaning Ness inhabitant with diamond-shaped fin, which would allow for it to be added to the British Registry of Officially Protected Wildlife. Nevertheless, the discovery was met with general skepticism. It was pointed out that Scott's name for the creature was an anagram for Monster Hoax by Sir Peter S. Some suspected the sonar traces were the result of human error and that the photos had been retouched to have a more convincing appearance. But Rhines was undeterred. He pointed out that Scott's scientific name for Nessie could also be anagrammed as, yes, both pics are monsters, R. He firmly believed that he had genuine evidence of the Loch Ness Monster's existence and mounted another expedition. Despite this skepticism regarding Rhines' discoveries, an ambitious expedition called Operation Deep Scan was launched in late 1986 at a cost of nearly one million British pounds. It was organized by Adrian Schein, the leader of the Loch Ness Project, which had been engaged in fieldwork at the loch since 1973. Starting in October 1986, 10 boats were deployed on Loch Ness, equipped with top-of-the-line echo sounder technology. They spread across the loch and simultaneously sent out acoustic waves that covered the loch in its entirety. However, adverse weather conditions and powerful winds made gathering any useful data nearly impossible. But the initial results were promising and Operation Deep Scan was attempted again in October 1987. 
This time they had 24 boats at their disposal instead of 10, and the weather was much more cooperative. Operation Deep Scan attracted significant media attention, with over 250 newspapers and 20 television crews covering the expedition. On the first day, they made three contacts between 250 and 600 feet deep. BBC News reported that the expedition had detected an object of unusual size and strength. Sonar expert Daryl Lawrence, who had donated several of the expedition's echo sounder units, analyzed the data and determined all three contacts were larger than a shark, but smaller than a whale. While he didn't outright say that Nessie was the object detected, Lawrence said, quote, there's something here that we don't understand, and there's something here that's larger than a fish, maybe some species that hasn't been detected before. I don't know, end quote. Similar evidence was discovered during an expedition in 1992 and 1993 called Project Urquhart, led by BBC newsman Nicholas Witchell in conjunction with London's Natural History Museum, the Freshwater Biological Association, marine imaging companies Simrad, and the Discovery Channel. Although its primary purpose was to study Loch Ness's biology and ecology, the project's sonar devices detected a large moving underwater object that it was able to follow for several minutes on July 28th 1992. Thor Edlund, the project's sonar specialist, described the contact as being much stronger than the contacts they had made with schools of fish. Whatever the contact was, it wasn't normal. In 1993, the Urquhart project made four similar contacts to what had been detected in July 1992. Bernie Lees, a senior engineer at Simrad, called them, quote, strong high-value targets far too large to be one of the loch's known fish, end quote. As more and more hard evidence began to mount that there was something in Loch Ness that defied explanation, the argument for Ness's existence took a huge blow. In 1994, only a few months after Project Urquhart concluded, a revelation emerged that would cast everything people had thought about Nessie into doubt. Thanks for listening to another episode of Unexplained Mysteries. Come back next week when we conclude our investigation into the legend of the Loch Ness Monster. As we follow Nessie's legend into the 21st century, we'll go more in-depth into the mythology behind this creature. We'll also look into possible explanations of what people might be seeing when they have a Nessie sighting. Is it a trick of the light? or the result of an earthquake. But if the Loch Ness Monster is actually real, what kind of creature might it be? Could it be the last of a species of dinosaur? Or is it something that defies definition entirely? Tune into part two and all will be revealed. Don't forget to subscribe to Unexplained Mysteries on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We are on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, 
Sound designed by Paul Liebeskind, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unexplained Mysteries is written by Alex Benedin and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner.